0: Matt Boudreaux.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 353. You're listening to. My guest today is recording, mixing, and mastering engineer Matt Qualls, based in Memphis, Tennessee. Longtime fan and longtime friend of the show. Matt and I have stayed in touch over the years and he's made some guest suggestions, including former WCA guest Jeff Powell. And we're very happy to have him here today to discuss his journey thus far. Matt Qualls coming up here on the working class audio podcast grab your coffee cups friends let's talk about overcommitting i like to say yes to projects you know i love doing the work i find it enjoyable but sometimes i say yes a little too much and pile too much on things start to get crunched together we i think we all like to say yes and saying yes i don't think is a huge problem as long as you set the expectations for what it is you're working on and when you're going to deliver ultimately what the client needs when they need it sometimes some clients will tell you right up front hey there's no rush you know there's no label there's no you know i'm waiting to get paid or there's always some little thing there that tells you okay i can put this on the back burner But I think we all need to watch how much we put those clients on the back burner. I try to prioritize every client equally, but sometimes, you know, some people's deadlines supersede others and you have to just, you know, get those projects done first. There's simple hacks that we all can do, which I'm sure many of you are already doing, but just a reminder, the calendar. The calendar is a powerful tool. Even your simple Apple or Google calendar that you use day to day, really can help scheduling stuff in even for yourself is super helpful with a calendar also it gives you a visual representation of what you have in front of you and of course you don't have to you know stick to it a hundred percent on the time you know if you said i'm going to work on this mix from 2 p.m to 5 p.m you know if you go a little over or you do a little less it's not the end of the world it's a framework for operating and it's a framework for getting stuff done. And I definitely think it's better than just improvising your day. You may disagree, you may like improvising your day. You know, the other reason the calendar is good is because it'll allow you to see not only the business things that you're doing, your audio work that you're doing, but also your personal stuff too. Because let's not forget, overcommitting can cause the two worlds of personal and business to bleed into one another and conflict with one another. And that can cause its own set of tensions, right? Let's say you committed to going and doing something for the family on a Saturday, but maybe in a random conversation during the week, you told somebody that you'd have a mix that afternoon. The family is right there in front of you, so that is the information you're probably going to be hearing more often, You know, especially if you have kids. Hey, we're gonna go to the movies, the zoo, whatever. And unless you've written down the client's work, then you may forget that you're going to do that. So, absolutely, use the calendar. Use the calendar to track it all, space it all out. That way you know what the list is of things you have to do that day. Also, setting expectations. I know we all love to, you know, say, hey, I'll get this done, you know, ASAP, no problem. I know it's a cliche, under-promising, over-delivering, but you know what? It works. Maybe give people not the worst-case scenario, but something short of that just so that, If you need to buy yourself a little time, you can. If the mix takes a little longer, if the editing takes a little longer, whatever it is you're doing, you have that freedom to say, yeah, I'll have this to you on Tuesday, but if you end up delivering it on Monday, that's great. But if you end up delivering it on Tuesday, you did what you said you were gonna do. So buy yourself that time by using that technique. Now, if you're mixing and you're mixing in the box, I can't stress enough the power that comes from having a template. Starting from scratch with a mix can be very time consuming. I'm not saying that having a template is the one and only way to do it, but I've found that time and time again, when I go back to certain templates that I have, I get up and running with a mix far faster. And it really is inspiring to me as I'm working on it, because once I take the tracks that I've been given and inject them into the templates that I work with, and now I'm like 75, 80% there, then I start to get amped up and I start to really focus on, you know, the bigger picture. I'm not, you know, going through the pains of, you know, assigning all the plugins, color coding and doing all that business. It's just there, it's ready to go and that sense of momentum is just energized. Now, and back to setting expectations for a sec. When you are setting expectations, remember, if you're doing a job that requires revisions, whether it's mixing or mastering, Uh, even if it's editing a podcast for somebody. Remember, you've got to factor the revisions in. Leave yourself a little leeway. One other thing to keep in mind is when you are committing to people in general, make sure that you leave in enough time to do a good job. If you pack so much stuff in, you know, in kind of a quantity versus quality fashion, your work is really going to suffer. You really want to give your clients the absolute best that you can offer. You want to be able to put your all into it and do them justice. So really don't pack too much stuff in in a day or a week uh, because you'll be burnt out. Your work will suffer for it. In the long run, it doesn't do you any good. And when we're tired and we're running on empty, then... You know we tend to slip. You know we we don't check spelling on file names, and if you misspell your client's name or the name of the band or the name of the project, um, it's the little things like that you want to make sure and catch. So it's a mul- multifaceted thing. Overcommitting has so many pitfalls to it when done wrong. Remember, it's okay to say yes, but remember to set expectations, leave yourself some breathing room. Underpromise promise and over-deliver, and watch for the little things. I wish you luck. Now go take care of those clients. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of Pro Audio. You m- might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. Incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the US. And I just love that whole thing. So, if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Matt Qualls here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's great to have you on. We have exchanged emails and messages over the years, and you're responsible for having our mutual friend Jeff Powell come on the show, former WCA guest Jeff Powell. And... I think if you were to Google your name in my inbox, it would come up numerous times.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. I've been a, a long time listener since the early days, honestly. I think I caught on around like episode five or something. Wow, You're a
1: glutton yeah. for
0: punishment. <laughs> <laughs> I was working at a job that required some other form of entertainment. It was just menial data entry stuff, so podcasts were the name of the game. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And uh, let's
1: bring it back to you and, and talk about your journey. First of all, where are you at today geographically?
0: Right now, I'm in the control room of Easley McCain Recording in Memphis. Okay. And where are you living currently? I'm living in Memphis, too. I'm living in the control room. In... <laughs> <laughs> living in the control room right here. Never leave. Never go home. <laughs> now, where did you grow up, though? I grew up in Memphis, too.
1: Oh, you grew up in yeah. Memphis. Okay. Well, we'll have to trace the steps here, because there was a time you spent in Albuquerque, if I'm right.
0: Yep, and uh, the Bay Area. And the
1: Bay Area. Okay. Well, let's go back to the beginning. When did recording come onto your radar as something of
0: interest or importance? Probably when I was about 19 or 18 years old. I was in a band that got picked up by Victory Records, and that was the first time a band I'd ever been in wasn't recording with a friend of a friend in their home or some kind of like BS recording studio. And that was like the real, real first time for me to see the process of what it's like to make a record in a true studio with a producer, with an engineer, and also to work for like a month straight in the studio on an album. Mm. That totally cracked that world wide open for me. And that's, that's where it started, for sure.
1: What instrument were you playing?
0: I was playing guitar. Okay. Yeah, and believe it or not, the, this is pretty funny, but that first experience was recording in Richmond, Virginia, with a guy who's a great engineer. He was just kind of caught up in some life stuff. And it wasn't the greatest experience for us as a band, and me personally. I played a total of five minutes of guitar on the album, even though I was a guitar player in the record. His understanding it was one guitar player playing all the parts together will end up being tighter in the end. And now it's like kind of that reverse psychology of that where the two different guitars makes things wider and just heavier in all the ways. And so it was just this real weird experience of being in a studio, but it still it didn't it didn't tear me down or anything like that. It still had me so interested in the process and how things were done. It was just a completely different way of doing things than I'd ever experienced, period. So I just sat there the whole time and just watched this guy work because I played nothing. So it was kind of like a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways.
1: Did it change the trajectory of your career
0: right then and there? No, it was a long, not I mean, not super long. It was like a couple of years probably of me realizing that touring is not really what I wanted to do anymore. I love playing music. I love creating music with people, obviously. I just got real burnt out on living in a van with four or five other people. And I was like 19, man. So if I was having that mindset then, I knew there's no longevity in this. So I decided it's probably best to kind of pivot out of being in a band and just be a member of a bunch of different bands, but in a a different role.
1: How did you move that vision forward and how did you turn it into something professional?
0: Well, I didn't go to school for any recording stuff. I was basically DIY. I mean, the bands that I was in were all like punk and metal and hardcore bands, so we always adopted that DIY ethos. And so for a lot of the time, it was me just selling equipment like guitar amps and stuff like that that I wasn't really using, extra guitars, and slowly buying a Personas interface with a a Mac computer and using GarageBand and then stepping into the world of Logic and doing it real DIY. I was recording people wherever I could. I would bring all of my equipment, show up with it in the back of my truck or back of a car, set it all up in makeshift scenarios and record my friends' bands, either at their rehearsal places or anywhere that I could get in. And then eventually that became so needed that I I started to look for a semi-permanent place, and that ended up being at a doctor's office break room, believe it or not. I I worked in between tours for this doctor's office and my mom worked there too. She got me the job. So it was like very just come and go when I could. Dude, I literally shredded documents for a living for a while there. That was my job. I had this little office in the back and I would run paper into this shredder for eight hours a day. But on the weekends, they were closed and they had this huge break room. Because there were probably 40 employees that worked in this building. And so one day I'm in there and I realize this room actually kind of sounds cool. I wonder if I could just record a band in here, semi-live, baffle things off, and do it in a weird, quick and easy way. And I worked out a deal with the doctor's office and they said, yeah, you can come in on Friday nights and you have to leave by Sunday night because that's when the cleaning crew comes in and they get everything ready for Monday morning and I was like, all right, let's do it. So I was just recording bands in this doctor's office for probably three years like that and then it started to become more professional once I realized that facility wasn't going to be big enough anymore or it wasn't conducive as much as I thought it was and uh, making records in that place, I started to realize the shortcomings of it and started to look at, other studios around town, but I felt like my knowledge base wasn't ready for the big studios yet. But I just happened to be in a place where some friends of mine in this band called The Dirty Streets from Memphis here, they're an amazing band, by the way, they basically got an opportunity to record at Ardent Studios. Mm -hmm. And I got the opportunity to assist on that session. And so through that process, I realized, like, oh, maybe this isn't as like intense of a situation as I thought, or maybe this is more doable and conceivable than I originally believed. And while I was there, the manager of the studio at the time, a good friend of mine named Dan Russo, he kind of walked by and he was like, Matt, what's up, dude? What are you doing here? And I was like, I'm just hanging out and doing the assisting. And really, I, I wasn't really assisting. I was just kind of like hanging out with my friends and encouraging them and making sure that, the translation between them and the engineer on the session, Adam Hill, who I love, huge mentor of mine, making sure that that translation was making sense and everybody was on the same page. But he said, oh, that's cool. Well, I'm glad you're here. If you ever want to come work a session at Ardent, you know, let me know. And I kind of thought, well, is, is that something that's on the table? Because I've never worked here. I don't know. Like, would you trust me to do that? But he said, sure, man, like just get with Adam or another engineer that's a house engineer They'll walk you through all the stuff you need to know. You'll pay for that time like you would a client. And then from there, we can just let you hit the ground running. And so I said, what the hell? Let's do it. And spent a day or an afternoon up there with Adam, and he kind of showed me everything in Studio C and then also showed me Studio A a little bit. But there were there were some tech issues that they were working out in there, so I kind of stayed away from that room. It was just like one of those things where – I felt really comfortable in Studio C, and Studio A was still one of those. That was like another tier that I was not ready to step onto yet. Like tech issues added with new studio, workflow, mindset, that whole thing. It was just way too much for me. But Studio C, I probably made maybe like 40 records over the five years that I was there. And that was was an awesome experience. But I was strictly freelance. I was never on staff. I want to go back to the doctor's office for
1: a minute. Sure. Yeah. Because you said something there that resonates with me in that in the time that you were working there, you eventually started to understand what the shortcomings are of that place. Right. And I think that's such an important lesson to learn with anything, with a piece of gear, with a space you're in, with a a, a technique where you start to understand, oh, yeah, actually, this isn't so good. I can do better. Always seeking improvement, or as my my friend uh, Mark Sullivan, the snowboarder, would say, "Kaizen." You know, it's yeah, constant improvement. So, what other takeaways did you come away with from the doctor's office besides realizing the space had some shortcomings?
0: It just was a lot of the last twenty five percent or so of the getting the job done that was not facilitated in that space because one, there's time restrictions. More so than just like, oh, if we need another day, we'll just book another day and add it on there unless there's another client coming. But it wasn't even like that because it was a doctor's office. We had a hard time to get out and then we couldn't get back in there for another week. So that was one limitation. Another limitation was, you know, it's not a room treated for recording music or audio in any way. So it kind of had some weird pitfalls there sonically. And then really, I just wanted to get out of that place and be in a more professional facility. And also I wasn't using a headphone system. Everything was live. There were a lot of like weird weird situations in that studio where we just made it work. There was no overdubbing with everyone in the control room because there there was no control room. I had my shit set up in a cubicle, dude, <laughs> like it was It was guerrilla warfare out there, but it was really fun, and it was a lot. A lot of really, really amazing records were made there, and I still have people that ask me about the the office break room recordings. They're like, "Man, can we go back there sometime and record?" (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how that works, you know. I'm sure the place had a character to it. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, it was great because there's all these cubicles there, no one's around, so all of all of my like, you know, insane punk rock. Friends of mine in these bands would just kind of peruse all the desks and be like, hey, look at this hilarious photo that I found of this random family. Or we just made the most out of the situation we had. And it was a lot of fun. And we were young, but we still got it done and it still sounded good. But just being in that place, it became too minimal, you know? And I wasn't like living in a home or anything. I was like living either in an apartment or with my parents. So like doing stuff from home just. Did not work out either.
1: And then my next question is, is when you got to Ardent, what was it about the other room? What was the the barrier there for you? Was it there was there a different console in there? I mean, besides right. the tech issues, like what would stop you from just taking what you've learned about studios? Is it C that
0: you were in? Right, Studio C was the one I mostly was in.
1: Why would you not take that knowledge from Studio C and apply it to Studio A? What was, tell me the the the, the barriers there.
0: Well, for one, Studio A, they had a Neve VR console, mm. I believe it was a VR60. And so constant, constant tech on that console. And the dreaded toothpicks in the mix bus selecting right here at the base of the console, right above the fader, in between your hand and the EQ or like Ouch. so you would go to grab an EQ and then everything would just be gone because you've like blasted five toothpicks out of the way. So I tended to stay away from that. And then I recall I recall the patch bay being daunting for me at that time because it was it wasn't mislabeled or anything. But I feel like there was it was like the, the labeling had started to rub off is what it was. And so it was really hard to read what line was what. I did a couple sessions there, but I feel like every time I did a session there, I don't have to go grab somebody like the tech or the night guy and say, hey, do you know where this is? Can you help me do this one thing? Mm -hmm. And with C, it had just been built. I think in 2011, they had rebuilt it. And I started working there in about 2013. So it was a brand new facility. It had a brand new SSL duality console. Like, you can use as much or as little of that as you want. And another reason that I really love that, that room is it was a full 48-channel console, so I could run the whole thing in split where 1 to 24 was all going to Pro Tools or the tape, and then 25 to 48 is the monitor playback. And then I can mess around with, like, doing a mix and getting the band, like, very happy with how things sounded when they came back to listen. And it was just really fun for me too, because as an engineer, that afforded me a lot more ability to experiment with the gear to say, like, oh, what does a Fairchild 670 sound like inserted on the rooms? I don't know if I necessarily want to commit to that recording, but I can insert it on the playback channel strips and see what that sounded like. So it was a really good way for me to get used to what it's like to mix on a desk, proper gain staging, proper routing, how to incorporate outboard gear, what outboard gear sounded the way that I wanted it to and what things were left, you know, left a little bit to be desired. And then the room just sounded great. It was a little smaller of a room and it had real hard reflective surfaces everywhere. And A is massive. Like it's a huge room. You could probably fit two whole bands in there if you, if you really wanted to. And so C was a little bit just more contained. It was off in the back. It was kind of quiet. Nobody really was hovering around too much you know, it was just everything worked. So I never had to worry about, oh shit, hang on, let's take an hour real quick while we do this thing or something. So that was a huge incentive for me.
1: It's a big lesson too, in just maintenance and labeling. I mean, yeah, you were completely hampered in A by poor labeling, constant maintenance, because when you're coming up, you don't know if Am I doing this wrong, or is the signal just not passing?
0: Right, and and for me, being new to it all, it just seemed like way less of a headache if I have all of those things covered and figured out first before I ever even throw a microphone up, because I'm the type of person that, when the pressure is on, sometimes I can find myself running circles around myself trying to find one solution that's pretty much right there in my face sometimes, and especially in that point, because I went from literally zero education and learning it all on my own and picking up bad habits through my own ignorance and misinformation on forums and stuff like that to coming into a, a real studio and seeing like oh that I can actually get you into some serious trouble especially when someone's paying for the time because mm-hmm. I was charging my friends chump change basically so it was just another step but then eventually that room became so comfortable that I didn't even have to think twice about it and I just kept Kept booking the room because it was just like the back of my hand. Everything worked all the time, and it was great. And Chris Jackson was the tech at Ardent at that time, and he was a brilliant. He he still is a super brilliant man. He works for the uh, local light gas and water company now. They scooped him up because he's like on that level uh, of an engineer, like a literal electronic, you know, electrical engineer. Yeah. And he developed these switches for the new VR too that don't melt when it gets too hot because apparently that's what was happening and so he had replaced all of the switches in a by that time i had already moved but that dude worked his ass off on getting that knee vr as solid as it could be and he still is like the guy in town anytime anybody has some serious questions about console stuff or teching any kind of like outboard gear or anything like that, he's he's like one of the first guys to call, even though he is extremely, extremely busy. When, when you talk about
1: patch bay issues and stuff like that, it all I always flash back to the same scenario, which I'm sure I've told on the show before, where small studio in San Francisco doing work with a band, you go to patch something and you're like, it's not there, what's going on? And you're so new that you start to doubt yourself instead of yeah. know that, oh, if I just jiggle it, It'll work, and um, yeah. Unfortunately, I had to make a couple calls to the owner to say, "What about?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah. Just just pull it in and out a few times. It'll work eventually." Yeah. I hate that shit. I totally hate that. It sabotages (laughs) your own like mental well-being in the studio to the point where
0: you're like, "Okay, don't break. Don't 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 stop working in the middle of this take." Right. It was just enough for me to say, I think. C will be the place that I'll rock for a while just because it was. So, and B, their B room wasn't really used for recording all that much. Even though you could, it was predominantly a mix room. So they would track in A and C, and then everybody would scoot into B and mix in B. So it worked out that they, they had a whole workflow going over there.
1: How long did you spend there?
0: Let's see. I started there. I started freelancing in 2013 and then moved in 2015. So not very long, about two years. Two or three. Did you move out of town? Yeah, I moved to the Bay Area. That's when I moved. It was the tail end of 2015. And where here did you live? I actually lived in Half Moon Bay. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was beautiful. That's a beautiful place, yeah. What was the cause of
1: moving out here?
0: Well, my girlfriend at the time, her parents were living there. Her mom was getting some neurosurgery at Stanford. And they had relocated to Half Moon Bay, We're living there. We originally met in Memphis and then reconnected while she was living in California. But then she moved back to Memphis to finish her degree at the University of Mississippi here. And then when she finished that, she was like, I want to move back to California. And I was like, let's go, let's do this. So we packed up our stuff and moved out there and we were living with her folks for a little while and really tried to get settled enough to where we could find our own place, but. This was like the tail end of 2015, early 2016, so the rental market was pretty high. Not as high as it is now, I'm sure, but even then it was high. And for someone like me who didn't really know many people out there and hadn't built a rapport with anyone, it was really hard to get into studios and and get working. But a lot of people were extremely nice to me in that community, 100%. Because I tried to network as much as possible. And Jeff Powell put a, a word out there to Michael Romanowski, and he was very nice to me. You were also very friendly with me. John Vanderslice was great to me. He met with me once at Tiny Telephone, and we we talked for like two hours. And it was wonderful. And then Ryan at Sharkbite, mm. also very, very awesome. But it ended up that I didn't really do much work in the Bay Area while I was there. I mean, I was only there for about a year and a half, but I probably did three sessions, I think, Mm. in that time. So it was was quite difficult for me. And that's what prompted the move to Albuquerque, actually. Now, what brought you to Albuquerque? The lack of living situations in the Bay Area and struggling to find a place for under $3,000 a month was kind of the calling card. Because in Albuquerque, it's as cheap as it was in Memphis. And you can rent a home for $1,200 1200 to $1,500 a month, or something like that. And so, my girlfriend at the time, she was really into beer and worked at a, a brewery out there in the Bay Area and wanted to continue doing that. And New Mexico has a great beer scene. So, we just ended up going there. We had a mutual friend that lived there too. She let us crash with her, and we ended up loving it, man. It was great. I, I felt like I was retired though at like 28, 29, because I was living out in this small town called uh, Placidas, New Mexico. It's between Santa Fe and Albuquerque ish. Yeah. And it's just like, it's like scenic. It's beautiful. There's wild horses everywhere. You could see for 80 miles from our front porch. And it was beautiful. I only worked like three days a week on a food truck. So like I had tons of time (laughs) to just write music and, and play music and, and do a little bit of session work here and there. But I did a lot more mixing than I did anything else when I lived in, in New Mexico, for sure. You did a lot more mixing, you say? Yeah, absolutely. I did some, some recording. But a lot, a lot more mixing, for sure. So you had
1: a, a home setup with a Pro Tools rig, I assume, or, or some DAW rig. Totally,
0: yeah. I've always had an at-home rig for the most part. I've always had like a pair of monitors, a computer, and a small interface. And at that point, I was just rocking an Apollo Twin and Pro Tools, and that's it. And it was it was working really good. And a Mac Mini, I think, too. Yeah. What were you taking around as monitors in the in that time period? I had a pair of NS10s for a long time, and then I had some KRK V6 models, like the early ones, the ones from the 90s when the drivers were made by Focal. They were awesome. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah, they're really, they're kind of inexpensive, too. It's funny, I, I, I was like watching a video of Joe Barisi talking about his monitoring in his studio at Jayhawk out there in LA, and I, I saw those, and I was like, Weird. I wonder what he was using those for. And then like in the video, he's like, I'm listening, listening on these about 60% of the time. And then the rest is between, I think NS 10s and some, some other ones. And I just happened to reverb search <laughs> the KRKs, And there was a pair from a guy in Albuquerque selling them for like 450 for the pair. And I was like, shit, why not? I'll try it. Cause hmm. I was using NS 10s and I liked NS 10s, but I wanted something that that I could just blast a little louder every now and again that wouldn't just totally pinch the top or just oh, take my head off for 12 hours a day. Because as everybody knows, the NS10s can be fatiguing. And you probably are already recognizing it's
1: odd that I'm even
0: asking you about this on this
1: show. And I'm only asking because I'm I'm fascinated with, you know, what people are doing in a portable situation or more situations that they can toss in a backpack. And, you know, it's well-documented Andrew Shep's taking around uh, the Sony headphones, right? Uh, 7506s, I think it is. So I'm, I'm intrigued by smaller monitor situations these days and, and
0: less weight, something you can toss in a backpack. So that's why I ask. Yeah, totally. My, my NS10s actually came in like a road case or they had like cases built for them. So the lid sat on the bottom and then you could just drop the case down pull the top off and there's your NS10 and it's already got absorption padding on the bottom and all that. So it was, they were great for that, but carrying the amp around was the, the pain in the ass. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I went with the KRKs because I figured they were better off. But honestly, the main, the main thing now that you say you mentioned Andrew Ships and the headphones, I got pretty used to using those, uh, Audio-Technica AT-M40Xs, I, th- I believe. Yeah. I've got two pairs right here somewhere. Dude, yeah, I want to say that your podcast was the place that I heard about. I think you might have even been talking about how how you like them, how the mid-range is pretty clear. They're not hyped on the top and the bottom. And I remember trying them, and I was like, okay, these are fantastic. So I always carried a pair of those with me, too, anytime I was working at freelance in a studio that didn't really have NS10s or a great monitoring situation. But, I mean, I've always moved studios. I've worked in so many different studios now that – Monitoring is just one of those things that, like, I have to give myself a point of reference before I ever make a, a decision on the room or the monitoring anymore. So I have a Spotify mix reference playlist that I pull up and I, I kind of like sound bath in that for a little while, like at least 30 to 40 minutes before the session starts, where I'll just get my head in the game, listen to records that I know and love, and see, like, okay, how does this really bright record sound in this room? How does this really low endy? record or the soft top to record sound and then from there I'll kind of like know this is my range and my threshold between with EQ mostly yeah it's interesting i recently bought a pair of the IK multimedia ilouds
1: the smallest speaker they make yeah and i have to say my initially i was like oh i don't think so i think i'm going to have to send these back but then i made some changes on the back of them and I was like, okay, okay, now this is starting to sound like I expect it to sound. And I've tried a couple mixes on them. I've done a couple podcasts on them and listened to a ton of music on them. And I'm starting
0: to understand, I'm like, oh, yeah, this could work. And these could fit in my backpack. That's awesome. I love that. I think making records on whatever equipment you have is what's best for the job. And like all the court. you know wine sniffery like cork sniffery I guess is the is the way you put it I feel like all that's kind of blown out of proportion a little bit you know there's all these like comments on the internet about how amazing certain things are and truth be told like a U47 sounds amazing don't get me wrong I love that mic but if all you have is an Aston mic or a SE mic or a MXL condenser mic get it done I love that I think that's great Absolutely. And I'm just, I'm looking for the portable situation.
1: So that's why I'm diving deep into this, this area, but yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases and a host of other features. And remember WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for sampley.app There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with sampling makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. Let's move on. So Albuquerque, very different place than Memphis. Very different from the Bay Area, landscape-wise. And as you say, cost of living, great in that
0: respect. But were you able to get work? Here and there, yeah. It was pretty limited, much like the Bay Area. I knew going into moving there that it was going to be the same challenge of not having rapport with anyone. No one knows who I am there, so they're just like, who's this fucking weird guy coming up to me at a show saying I like your band, I want to record your band. You know, they don't know me from anybody. So it was pretty difficult to earn trust from people early on, but I spent more time in Albuquerque than I did in, in New Mexico and it ended up forming relationships with bands and those bands ended up telling other bands and then things started to really pick up before I moved back to Memphis. And I was working with this guy named Matthew Kabbikabakov who is a wonderful human being. He has a studio in Santa Fe in his home there, and I did like three or four sessions up there with him, and they were a f- super fun time. You could cut for a couple hours and then go hike for a couple hours or like go walk around in his backyard, and you're just looking at the Sangre de Cristo mountains and stuff. You know, It's just like amazing, amazing visuals and an amazing place for bands from not from there. To come out and record there too that that was a couple sessions but it was still really really hard i mean i didn't have the facility so i had to find a facility and there's not many facilities in albuquerque proper anyway on top of there's not many musicians there sadly mm-hmm. i mean there is but there's not a lot of musicians out there doing the kind of music that i was making at the time or that what i was known to be recording which is like garage rock bands or indie rock bands or heavy blues rock bands or metal bands and punk bands. There, there were some bands out there like that, but most of them just didn't have the money to put into making a proper record anyway. So it was a challenge sometimes, but it did work out great. And I love Albuquerque still visit all the time when I can. I would love to live there again at some point, truly.
1: Yeah, New Mexico, it's an interesting place from a recording perspective Ken Riley has been on the show. He's he's in Albuquerque, former WC guest Ken Riley. He's got uh, Rio Grande Studios there.
0: Oh right, yeah, I did meet Ken. I I did, yeah. He I met him at Guitar Center one time. He was buying this amp and he had it turned up so loud and it sounded bitching. And I walked over there and I was like, "Damn, dude, that sounds amazing." <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, I own a studio." Blah blah blah. And we we connected there and he was he was really cool, really cool guy. So
1: what was your takeaway of, of of New Mexico in general before you left? Like, How would you sum it up, the people, the recording scene, if somebody's
0: considering moving there, or if they live there now? I have nothing but good things to say about Albuquerque. I loved it. Everybody that I met there in the music community and, and, and show promotion community and just the music in general community has been amazing there's some incredible bands out there like there's this one band called prism bitch they're incredible prison bitch they used to be called prison bitch but then they had i don't know if they had to or if they just decided to change the name to prism p-r-i-s-m bitch but they're they're amazing they make amazing music videos too but there's this whole you know there's that whole film scene out there too so yeah a lot of the musicians are also actors or actresses too And my buddy, Cabby, who had the studio in Santa Fe, that was his bread and butter was he, he did sound for a lot of the film sets out there. And he tried to get me to jump into that and try that, but I just wasn't really what I was interested in doing. I had no experience and I really didn't want to like first get, get out there and then realize this is not for me and want to quit and walk away. So I just decided it's probably not, not meant for me in the end. Yeah. But I, I loved it there. It was beautiful. People were great. The food is incredible, as as most people know. There's just not a whole lot of recording studios out there. I know Ken has his place, Cabby has his place, and my friend Andy Offling, he has a studio in his home up there. But it's not like a commercial studio. It's just like in his backyard, but that's kind of it. So there's limited facilities. There really is. And I think to get
1: like a large facility, Neve, SSL, etc., the classic mm-hmm. gear and all that, you really have to go down to El Paso to Sonic Ranch mm-hmm. to get anything like that. In as far, right. And that's not even in the state of New Mexico. That's in Texas.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's like four hours. Yeah. It's like a four. Actually,
1: I think it's longer because you got to drive down to El Paso, which is... That's 45 minutes away from Las Cruces. So you're talking four and a half, five hours between Albuquerque and, and Sonic Ranch. You're right. Now, for our brothers and sisters who are doing location sound, from what I understand, Netflix had bought a huge space there. There's a lot of filming going on. Obviously, you know, Breaking Bad really helped kind of crack that whole thing pretty wide open. Yep. And a friend of mine who is a state senator, actually, That I grew up with, he was very instrumental in bringing film production to New Mexico. That's super
0: cool. Yeah. So what ultimately led to the decision for you to leave? Well, my good friend Calvin Lauber, who is another producer and engineer in Memphis, he was working at Ardent when I was leaving. And he and I have always been friends. Our bands had played together in the past. And we had worked together on sessions. I hired him. Whenever I needed to record my own band, he would engineer for me and vice versa sometimes. But anyway, I was visiting Memphis and I was actually making a record. I would come back to Memphis every so often to make records at either Ardent or another studio while I was still living in the Bay Area or in Albuquerque too. It was a lot easier for me to come when I was living in Albuquerque for sure because it's a thousand miles down 40. (laughs) You know, it's just I-40 to I-40. It was a, a journey, but I, I love road trips anyway, so I didn't mind. But when I was in Memphis recording a record, I came by and saw the studio that he had just started working in, which is called Young Avenue Sound. He had left Ardent and started working there as like their house engineer. And it was a really cool facility and a really unique space. And I, I thought, oh man, this is great. If you ever need some extra hands around, let me know. You know what I mean? I'm considering moving back to Memphis. That that might be something down the road just because Albuquerque was a little too slow for me work-wise. Everything else it was great for. But about a year later, he hits me up and he's like, dude, how serious are you about coming to move back to Memphis and coming to work at Young Ave? And I was like, it's on my mind. I definitely want to do it. And I had done a session there, so I already knew the room and knew the and knew the building. And we just had a conversation about what that would look like, how often he was getting booked, how much help he would need for me. And it worked out, man. So me and my ex girlfriend, we packed up, moved back to Memphis, and I started working with Calvin at Young Avenue Sound. And that was in two thousand eighteen is when like the tail end of two thousand eighteen. So it was like I left Memphis twenty fifteen, left 2016, and then moved back to Memphis right about at the end of 2018, 2019. So I got a good full year of working here at Young Ave before we went into the pandemic. So now when you came back, was there plenty of work? Oh, yes. Yeah, because I'm from here. Most people know me and have known the bands that I've been in or bands that I've worked with around town. And I feel like word of mouth was just spreading faster in this community than it was anywhere else that I'd been. And I'd already been working at Ardent, so that had, that had some sort of, like, I guess for lack of a better word, clout in a way, where, oh, he's a serious engineer, he's worked at the studio, and other artists had heard the records that I worked on, so I was just getting constant work, constant work. And it's still that way now. It's just been endless since I moved back, which has been amazing for me.
1: What should others know who might be considering a move to Memphis, who are audio professionals, who would love to get into that world? not only of of Memphis and the culture of Memphis but just you know being a
0: recording professional in Memphis what what are the intricacies of it oh man i love living in memphis it's amazing i f- i feel like it's one of the coolest recording cities in the world in my opinion because we have the history and we have all these other little pockets of cool shit going on since then too and even through to today but it's always been authentic it's always been genuine it's never been industry shit stacks was And obviously Sun and the Phillips family, that whole thing was part of a big push. But beyond that, it's mostly been kind of like underbelly stuff that still has somehow broken through. And people say that Memphis' biggest export is culture and music. And so that's one thing that you have to realize coming here is that it's a unique place. We're very fortunate in the fact that we have Sun Studio that's still an operating studio today. We have Royal that's still an operating studio today. We have Ardent, we have the Sam Phillips Recording Company, we have this studio, Easley McCain Recording. These are all legendary places and facilities in their own right that all have some history with the past, but in their own unique ways. Memphis is a, is a cool town. There's a lot of really amazing people, and it still is kind of a small town, which is one thing that I truly love about it. I feel like it's not, not overblown like Austin or Nashville maybe or New York or or LA. You're absolutely in a small town when you're in Memphis in a lot of ways. And how do you think it differs from Nashville? Ooh, I mean, there's a lot of people in both Nashville and Memphis who have like disdain for each other city. For some reason, there's like this weird rivalry. And I, I don't really feel that way. I feel like it's more of like a kindred, like sister city in a way and I, I i feel like the way that memphis and nashville really differ is that memphis is a little bit more rough around the edges and a little bit more like skeptical and a little bit less jovial we're also a little less you know, <laughs> for a lack of a better word we're, we're a little bit lazier around here like things move a little bit more slowly like i did a session 3 weeks ago with some nashville guys at ardent and they brought their own Producer, the artist and I are good friends. He brought his own producer, his own engineer, and his own band. And man, they they kicked ass. Like they took no names. It was amazing. But it was a completely different pace than I was used to working. Like they got in there, shit started at ten and it ended at eight. You know, and we had scheduled lunch. I had seen the number system a little bit here and there, but I was really put nose to the grindstone on the number system and charting while the song is going. And I I saw a lot of really cool things that I had not seen as used as much, even in LA working out there and stuff. It was just a, a lot more like we're clocking in, we're getting to work and we're doing this thing. And then we're all going home and having fun tonight afterwards. But with that, there was never a moment of, oh, that, that idea won't work because of time or, there was no hindrance of creativity at all. Everything was explored. All ideas were entertained, and every opinion was heard. Which is something that I really thought might not happen, given the schedule and given given the the environment of of it all. But they were a really great team, and uh, I, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. But I haven't worked in Nashville, so I don't know what the work studio work feeling is out there. I don't know many people in Nashville either. Memphis and Nashville kind of stay weirdly separated. I wish it wasn't so much like that. I wish there was more like conversation between Nashville and Memphis, but there's this strange stigma sometimes. People in Nashville think Memphis is dirty and people in Memphis <laughs> think Nashville is uh is too stale and boring. <laughs> <laughs> or whitewashed, as a lot of people put it, you know? Memphis's cost of living is quite low, is it not? It is, yeah, it definitely is. It used to be a lot lower. I mean, I have friends who bought homes for eighty thousand dollars and under. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah, I have a friend who he bought a home for forty thousand dollars recently. It was a fixer upper, no doubt, but forty thousand dollars. So. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild, but he do, he doesn't live in the greatest neighborhood or anything, but it's a home and it's it's equity for him, and he lives there and he loves it. But Memphis is pretty cheap, yeah, for now. I mean, I've noticed a lot of Texas license plates over the last six months. So I think we're somewhat being invaded in a way. Yeah. Well, wait till the
1: Californians start showing up, <laughs> paying cash for their houses and bidding a certain
0: percentage over. Then you know you're being invaded. I mean, apparently that's, that's already happening. It's already happening. There's all There's new development every day. There's new condos everywhere. It's growing hugely. I'm here for it because it means... More clients for me, more people out there for me to meet and connect with and new potential. You know, I'm not so much afraid of new people moving into the city. I I do fear for the people that it truly does change things for, though. People in the service industry out there who people are people who are struggling for affordable living. That is already a huge issue here. And we definitely need to rectify that and consider that before we start putting $3,000 condos up in the middle of fucking downtown, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) because it is very much an issue here. Yeah.
1: So as far as how you run your life, you know where I'm going with
0: the next few questions, which is financial perspective and your work-life balance. Yeah. I mean, finances for me have always been pretty loose because, I don't know, man, I'm not a businessman. I'm an artist at the end of the day. Like, this is all expression for me, and it all feeds my soul. And that weighs in heavily for me, and it weighs weighs in way more than, oh, am I going to be able to afford this luxury that I fucking don't need? So I, I live a pretty meager, thin lifestyle. I don't I don't really like embellish myself with too much stuff. I always buy things on the used market. I always try to buy things for the least amount that I can. You know, if I have to go onto credit, I'll do it. But damn sure it's going to be on that zero percent interest for two years or whatever. So you just have to be smart and and not play the game of, oh, I need this piece of equipment because it's going to make X, Y, Z easier for me, or it's going to ultimately make my records better. You, you need to have perspective of what truly brings new things to the table. Like for me, one of the biggest things was realizing that you can build a mix template and have all of your shit there and it's already pre-routed. All of the stuff that you would normally do and it would take maybe an hour or two to do. You can already have that pre-set up and then you can just load the files in and drop them into their track their respective tracks and move so much faster. Like things like that I feel like heavily outweigh workflow over something like a batch command program or a control surface or something like that. Like I feel like there's there's always a hack out there that you can find in the DIY realm that doesn't have to break the bank. And if, if that's there, explore that opportunity before you feel like you need to move into the next place. So I've always been pretty anti, as much as I am like a gear snob, I don't own a lot of uh, like incredible gear. I just have awesome friends that have cool gear and I get to use it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, I think when we started the conversation, we were talking in terms of present girlfriend And then at some point, I thought you said ex-girlfriend.
0: Yes, correct. Yeah.
1: Okay. Which leads me to ask you, the work-life balance thing is, how's that function
0: for you? I mean, it's definitely, I've definitely made a lot of sacrifices for sure. I mean, ultimately, work-related stuff is part of what ended that relationship for sure. And I've definitely lost connection and contact with a lot of friends over the years who don't work the same schedule as me or you know, we just can't seem to connect as easily as it used to be. Mm. That's just because I work so much and I work nights and a lot of my friends, I mean, I'm 34, so a lot of my friends are nine to fivers and stuff and they're off on the weekend. But the weekend is when I'm usually working because a lot of the musicians around here in Memphis are working class people, man. So, So Saturday and Sunday is like, those are like the cash cows most of the time. So I've lost friends, I've lost contact with a lot of people and then had lost relationships. But I don't feel like those things have ever been a reason for me to stop doing what I'm doing because I feel like this is exactly what I need to be doing. And if those things don't fall in line with that, then that's just the way the dice settles. So it's it's been hard for sure, but it's also I truly love what I do. And I don't I don't see any other occupation for myself. You never went to school for recording, you dove right in. Right. If you were to do things over, would you do it pretty much the same? I think so, yeah. I, I I would. Maybe I would have benefited from having some sort of recording clinic access or something like that. Something that's just let's put hands-on practical exercises rather than the concepts and having it be a little bit more abstract, watching YouTube videos, etc. If I had had some sort of clinic av- made available to myself that wasn't a four-year college program or a two-year college program, I definitely would have done that, but I don't know that I would have still gone into an educational path just because I feel like there is a lot to glean from those things, but I feel like bang for your buck, you're better off finding a mentor or finding some programs like that that can just get your foot in the door because at the end of the day it's all expression and it's all self- Self-expression. So it's subjective in a lot of ways. It's still art. And while there are a lot of right and wrong ways to do things, I feel like some of the best shit I've done has been, that was an accident. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Well, we're about out of time. Where can people find out more about you? I don't have a website or anything like that. I'm pretty incognito out there, but I do have an Instagram. That's kind of like my main public place to access me. And that's at let's jump in on IG. That's a good way to contact me that has a way to call me, text me, email me. We're working on a site over here at Doug Easley's and getting, getting a way for people to contact us and to see kind of what we're doing over here because he and I have recently partnered up over the last two months and I've been using this new facility over here within the past three weeks now. So it's still brand new and we're still working out some things, but it's been great. Wow. Well, that's, that sounds
1: fun. I wish you luck with that. And I will put a link in the show notes to your Instagram account so anybody can reach out to you. It's great to talk to you in person as opposed to over email. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and making time for me. Totally, man. It's been a blast. All right,
0: man. Well, you take care. Yeah, yeah. You too. Thank you, Matt. All right. See ya.
1: Matt Qualls here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, head on over to workingclassaudio.com and find the guest suggestion form, which differs, of course, from the contact form. If you fill the guest suggestion form out, it gives me all the details that I need to reach out and find guests and connect with them and have them on the show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, the magical voice that is, well, magical. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,